Hello listeners, welcome to the 10x Growth Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Aarti Vijayaraghavan, a product leader, an avid reader, and a book lover. Today, we'll be discussing the book Power Law by Sebastian Malabi with our guest, Mr. Ashmeet Sidhana. The book Power Law provides a detailed study of the evolution of venture capital industry, the business model, investor-founder relationships over the past 40 plus years. Ashmeet is the founder of Engineering Capital, a VC firm focused on investing in startups which are founded based on technical insights. His experience includes managing venture capital funds, serving on multiple boards of directors, and helping them build, build industries leading products with VMware ESX Server, Silicon Graphics Webforce, to name a few. He's also one of the few VCs to have been to the base of Mount Everest that's a fun fact, at least I gleaned out uh, from his uh, references. So I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting conversation discussing the book and also learn from Ashmeet and his insights and experiences. Welcome, Ashmeet, to the broadcast. Thank you, Aarti. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So I know I, I kind of gave a very brief introduction about yourself. Can you please tell me about your own journey and you know what led you to becoming a VC and how did you start in this uh, technical area? I describe myself as an engineer at heart who happens to work as a venture capitalist, which is sort of the profession that I follow. Mm -hmm. And I am an accidental venture capitalist. I didn't plan to be a VC. Um, at VMware, I was running product management for ESX server. VMware got sold. And about a year later, I decided to leave. And I thought I would start another company. My idea really was to go back to being an entrepreneur. And I was talking to friends and some VCs, including the good folks, uh, Catherine Gould, Mike Shu, Bill Elmore, Jim Anderson, the founders of Foundation Capital and the senior partners there. And they literally said, have you ever thought of being a VC? And I said, uh, that's an interesting question. Why do you ask? <laughs> and here I am a dozen years later. Uh, you know, working as a VC. I love the work. You know, they introduced me to the business. They taught me the business and uh, taught me how to think. And uh, I love the work. So okay. that's, that's how that's I became a VC. So accidental VC. <laughs> For sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I, this, I think this is a lot of uh, people. Uh, it's, it's one of the things which is also described in the book. Founders are typically one of the few people who turn into angel investors and VCs itself. I think you followed that path of uh, getting into the VC. So, and, you know, obviously based on this, uh, you know, how could you describe power law and how did, how do you build on, you know, bet on investments in your portfolio based on the power law itself? What I love about the approach that Sebastian took in the power law is to, of course, he, you know, the book is written with a whole bunch of anecdotes about different firms, different companies and different times in the venture capital business. And um, it's a very interesting approach because that is exactly how venture capital works. Mm -hmm. What I would like, the way I like to say it is that there's a thousand different ways to practice venture capital. There's no set formula. There's no set way or playbook that you must run by to succeed in venture capital. And probably the best example of that is to just simply look at two of the best firms in the world, you know, Benchmark and Sequoia Capital. They could not be more different on what most people would consider parameters for investments. So one is a local firm. The other is a global firm. One still manages a roughly $400 million Series A, you know, uh, early stage fund is an egalitarian partnership. The other is a multi-stage firm 
with many, many people, obviously globally distributed, presumably run, you know, with some sort of a structure and a hierarchy with so many people working in it. Uh, one is again, single stage, the other is multi-stage. So on every variable, they are different. And yet they work together, not only in venture capital, but in individual deals, they will work mm -hmm. together sometimes. Yes. So that's what makes venture capital so interesting and so special. There's a thousand different ways to practice it, and yet you can win. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense a lot. And I think uh, you already touched on the one of the best uh, chapters in the book regarding how Sequoia actually won by the numbers. So we'll go into some more details on that as well. So one of the things, uh, you know, uh, it talks about also the Peter Thiel's investment philosophy regarding the strongest performance on the portfolio are the ones which are least amount of VC advice. What is your take on it? Like, how do you manage and what is your take on it in terms of advice and supporting your VCs? I think Peter Thiel is a very smart man, but in this particular case, he's painting with too broad a brush. Mm -hmm. It is a fact that the average VC does not add value to their investment. I actually believe that uh, if you do no harm, you are actually batting above average in venture capital as, okay. it, as a partner. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty dangerous thing to say, but I'm skeptical of how much value a venture capitalist can add to a company. That said, there are exceptions. And when a VC can add value, it can be a huge difference. It can be the difference between a small outcome or a massive outcome. It can be the difference between someone taking a company that could uh, potentially you know, uh, uh, have gone down astray. And with a little adjustment, it's the difference between uh, you know, failure and success. Uh, my own experience as an operating executive before venture was at VMware, as I mentioned. And we sold the company very early at VMware. I was not the decision maker. I'm using the Royal V over here. Yeah. Uh, Diane Green, obviously a fabulous entrepreneur, founder and CEO. I worked for her. Uh, was running the company, I believe we sold the company too early uh, because partially because we didn't have any venture capitalists. We didn't have a formal board in the sense where there was really control being exerted on the board of the company. Um, you know, she really had absolute control of the business, which has its advantages. But in this case, I believe it had its disadvantages and we lost. Uh, VMware was sold for $625 million. Today, it's a $50 billion company Yep. And all of that value was left on the table uh, because I believe, you know, we did not have enough experienced people who could guide us over there. Now, you know, this is revisionist history. Maybe the path would have been different or not. It's hard to know. Uh, but that is certainly an example that I feel very personally having worked there and having been part of the early story over there. So VCs can add value in exceptional cases. I believe they do add value. Uh, and it comes down to the individual partner, their experience, their worldview, and how they interact with the CEO. Yeah, and I think you brought up two good points, right? One is regarding how the VC advise and look, making the founders think strategically and think long-term. There are amazing examples in the book on how uh, maybe Benchmark or Sequoia, in some cases, they actually sold too early. And they left a lot of money on the table. So those anecdotes are also there in the book, actually. That's, let that's me, an amazing reference as well. Yeah. Let me give an opposite example. This is, again, from personal experience. Because of what I'm going to say, I won't give you the name of the company or sure, the sure. Yeah. who did it. But I had just become a venture capitalist. And I was new. I was still being trained. 
And I was attending boards of the senior partners. You know, that's how you train a, a mm -hmm. new VC. Uh, and I would go to the board meetings with Catherine Gould and Mike Shu and Adam Grosser and some of these partners. And I would go and listen and watch. And my job was basically to listen and watch in these meetings and learn. And I remember walking into a board meeting once, the very first meeting for that company after a financing had happened. And, uh, you know, I, was, I happened to be attending that meeting. So just a coincidence that it was the first meeting. there. So I walk in and I sit down and one of the senior partners who had previously led around and who had, who had made an investment walks into the meeting. And of course, you know, the CEO is shuffling in, adjusting the slides. People are, you know, pulling the chairs and the coffee is being served. And that's a typical way in which a meeting starts. And the moment the CEO is about to start talking, there's a hush, everybody quietens down. This partner says, um, excuse me, before you get started, I just wanted to let everyone know that I've been thinking about the trajectory of the company. And I have decided that we will not be investing any more capital in this business. Okay. Wow. I that mean, <laughs> was everybody suddenly looking at this partner now? And you should have seen the CEO's face. And um, obviously, the agenda went out of the window. <laughs> obviously, that created a new discussion. Uh, recall, I said that we had just closed, you know, a nice follow-on investment in that company. Uh, and uh, it was a masterclass in board management, in understanding the trajectory of the business, in understanding what was going wrong from the perspective of this partner. And I believe he was right. And uh, I learned a huge lesson from him in how to work well as a VC. And I believe he added tremendous value because he redirected the entire conversation from this illusion that a large business could be built and a venture style return would occur to how do we sell this business and just make you know one, two, three X on our money and just get out of the business, uh, which is what eventually ended up happening over there. Yeah, so, I, I guess it's one of the many ways you can exit and become a uh, better bet from a VC perspective itself, right? Yes, and I'm bringing it up specifically as a counter example of where a VC added, you know, value in a negative situation. Most mm -hmm. VCs would just stay quiet. They would walk yeah. away. They would say option value. It's not my decision. Whatever happens, the market will speak. We'll see. And, you know, there's always a one in a million chance that the company will work because nobody yeah. knows for sure. You know, we could be wrong, right? We are often wrong. In fact, we are mostly wrong as venture capitalists. Um, but here was a here was an example of a partner who had great operating experience, who made a very cogent case, a case that I happen to agree with, which actually changed the, the company on a trajectory and it managed to get something happen that was net positive relative to what the reality would have been. Yeah, makes sense. So another interesting thing, which in the book is like regarding how uh, these venture firms actually started introducing and advising partners, uh, mainly companies to collaborate, right? So there is a chapter in which he goes into details on a lot of Silicon Valley companies competing against each other, how PayPal and X were competing in the same space. It's either dog eat dog, or you can collaborate and something build something thousand X better. So, and also even the China VC network, those kind of examples were also very fascinating. So in your experience, how have you approached that? Have you, and there's also the IP, uh, IP infringement and also sharing and cooperation aspects of it, right? So any, any insights on those kind of things which you have done or seen in your experience in the Valley? I think part of what makes Silicon Valley such a magical place is uh, it's definitely not the excessive traffic that we have 
the unrealistic housing prices that we have, <laughs> the somewhat dysfunctional political uh, occurrences, you know, in San Francisco City, etc., uh, and the fact that we don't have a mass transportation system even today uh, in Silicon Valley. That's not what makes it so special. What makes it special is this concentration of very experienced business people who are all working at some level for their own interest. It's a capitalistic system, it's a free market, it's an open, uh, it's an open society. But because there is a high level of trust, we are able to collaborate in ways that would not work in a, less tr in a lower trust society, in a lower trust environment. Mm -hmm. And this geographic concentration actually increases the trust because we see each other for dinner, we see each other at our children's schools or when we go for a picnic with them or maybe a Warriors game. You know, you run into these people and those interactions increase the trust and that enables this special type of collaboration to happen that I think uh, the book brings out in a very interesting way. It's not only about IP. Yes, it can be about IP. Uh, in my own portfolio, I'm very happy to, to share that one of my companies, um, Nexla, recently acquired FIDAP, which also happened to be another one of my companies. Okay. Uh, that was a Google Ventures investment. Uh, Nexla, I was on the board of. And uh, for various reasons, it made sense for the companies to merge. And I made the introduction. And ultimately, of course, it's the decision of the CEOs and the decision of their respective boards and shareholders. And uh, they ended up consummating a transaction. And so, uh, you know, we saw that happen. That is part of the magic of Silicon Valley. So, yes, it is part of our playbook. It is part of the value that a VC can add. And it does occasionally happen. That said, it is a very limited set. It's only a rare occasion that you mm -hmm. see that happen. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, like I said, over a dozen years as a VC now, I've actually only had it happen once. So oh, okay. it's, it's that rare. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it gets press, it gets publicity because we, you know, see it often. I mean, we, it's, it's an interesting thing to write about, but it's a rare part of the playbook. Okay. Okay. That's, that makes sense, actually. And, and I guess the VC, the network is what is the one which is helping and achieving, take it to the next level. Even that one, important. it has to align. All the stars have to align. Right. And Aarti, it's important to understand why. So often, especially when I was running, you know, a very large platform earlier and earlier in my career and, you know, we were thinking global and lots of other work was going on. I would get delegations from people who would say, I want to start a Silicon Valley. What do I do to create mm -hmm. a Silicon Valley over there? Or why, why is Silicon Valley special? What is it that you are doing? Why can't we do that over here? And so I've had a chance to ruminate on it and talk to some people. And I've come to the conclusion that what makes Silicon Valley special and why this network and density is so important is because it increases the velocity. Yeah. The speed with which you could create a merger, for example, in the case of Nextlaw or FIDAP, it was literally instantaneous. You know, I made a phone call and I said, oh, this is a good idea. Okay, let me make another phone call. And three hours later, there was a conversation that was taking place. That doesn't happen when you are geographically distributed, when, you know, people are not working with each other closely in terms of uh, the business, you know, that they are running. So that's part of the magic of Silicon Valley. Yeah. And also it's the trust which you have built with both the things also, right? So the proximity and the trust also, Absolutely. I think that plays a large role. So, yeah. The other thing which I learned over here regarding the, you know, prepared mind exercise with Axel and how, you know, how they actually help them to go into different kinds of industries, right? 
so with the with these venture capitals do you guys use anything like that or uh, how is and any anything insight on you know since you must have obviously come across that exercise so what is your take on it uh, i have worked with excel on deals i have worked with partners there co-invested worked on boards and so definitely have that outsider's view on how they see uh, the prepared mind view what's happened um, is that venture capital today is a very mature business and it's a large business it's no longer a craft business it's no longer an ad hoc boutique you know one off deal that someone is doing i think when axel and jim brier pioneered the idea of a prepared mind it was revolutionary yeah. today it is a prerequisite for success Um, mm-hmm. Today, it is something which I think every venture capitalist has to practice to some extent. Um, now, how much they make it part of their thesis, how they approach being prepared, different people again have different approaches to how they uh, prepare themselves. But uh, today, it is an essential part of the playbook of being a VC, and I don't think you can succeed as a VC uh, unless you do have a prepared mind in some way, and you are bringing it to the market. Uh, to the, to the, to a, to what is a very competitive and a very large market today so yes whether that preparation is in a form of doing a technical deep dive a technical insight something i focus on whether that preparation is in terms of understanding the market itself you mm-hmm. know being a growth investor and thinking about what is the current pricing where will what will be the future pricing of this company what is the capacity or the moat that this company has built etc and evaluating those those are just two examples there are many other examples i could give of having a prepared mind in the venture capital business yeah it makes sense like i, I guess the, i think now all of uh, all of almost all the firms have a market research and a think tank arm which is which is either forward looking at industries landscape and consumer consumer acquisition all of them differently so that they are they're able to spot these uh, v, uh, spot these investments when they come across right so having that uh, that muscle is required for the vc industry right now i guess exactly um the other thing is like you know um, it was a very funny name for that chapter on russian tiger and the rise of growth equity so it's like you know the way they were evaluating the growth how durable the growth is and also the the most interesting for me was investments require that you ask different question at different prices i think that was a very good insight like what what did you think about it and any anything uh, you know in terms of how do you approach that because right now there are multi stage uh, investments or uh, investments which are unlocked based on reaching certain um, uh, certain milestones in the companies right so how do you uh, how do you train yourself to actually ask different questions at different prices this is the the value and the power of the way sebastian has written this book and brought out you know how venture capital works and the point that i started with that there's a thousand different ways to practice venture capital mm-hmm. and you have to understand the way you are practicing it you also have to understand the way the company is practicing building a venture scale company mm-hmm. because different ceos approach it differently there are ceos who are very frugal who uh, you know are extremely capital efficient who will practice with a two pizza team and literally try to build something revolutionary as a technology that's not what uber did yeah. uber is a great venture capital success yes. uber burned an enormous amount of capital did not have a technology moat yet built a very substantial company and i would argue changed the direction of transportation 
you know, they've materially had an impact in how we think about transportation today. Um, you know, we've delayed getting driver's licenses because uh, people feel they can take an Uber and it's more comfortable. Uh, we've seen a complete collapse in the rental industry because people prefer Uber over renting cars. Yeah. So uh, there are different ways to practice venture capital. And so especially if you are a growth investor, but I believe this applies to all stages, but especially if you're a growth investor, you must be able to put yourself into the shoes of the company that you are going to invest in and understand what play that person is running. How do they trade off this basic trade off between capital invested and growth rate? Every company makes a trade off mm -hmm. and you can make completely different trade offs and yet come out ahead or fail if you, you know, make the wrong trade off over there. So I think the heart of the question that you're asking really goes to understanding that, which is how much capital is, is efficient for the growth that you are hoping to achieve. And then you evaluate the risk on that growth. If you're only planning to grow 50% year over year at a growth stage, you shouldn't be burning any capital. Or let's say 40% and apply the rule of 40. Yep. You should be burning literally 0% capital if that's what you're, if that's the maximum growth rate that you're going to be able to achieve. That could still result in a venture style return if you literally burn $0. Now that's mm -hmm. not practical in the real life, but there are companies that do it. Um, there are companies that are very capital efficient. By the way, we were very capital efficient at VMware. You know, we didn't burn much capital at all. Okay. Uh, and we could, I would argue that that's probably a wrong trade-off. We could have been more valuable if we had burnt more capital and kept ourselves independent for a longer time. So that's the trade-off that I think uh, they are referring to in this chapter. Uh, this trade-off between how much capital to burn and how much risk to take, in other words, how much growth to shoot for, um, is, a, is a very difficult choice. It comes from judgment. It comes from experience. Different people have different beliefs. And you have to get aligned behind what the CEO is ultimately going to choose uh, on that path. Like the vision of the CEO and the vision of how the VC is looking at it from a return perspective. And as such, what the market is telling to both of these guys as well. I think all of these play into this role. It definitely Exactly right. Exactly right. It's very easy for a VC to fall into this uh, you know, seductive uh, mistake where you say, well, you know, if it succeeds, it'll be a billion dollars or it'll be $5 billion. So who cares, you know, what the burn is as long as we can raise money. That's not true. And we have many examples of that now where companies have even gone public or they've been acquired for large sums of money where really people didn't make a lot of return uh, because of, you know, because of the amount of capital that was burnt along the way. Aaron Levy at Box is probably the best example. I think Heidi wrote a blog post uh, on that in terms of how to you know, make a billion dollars and not get rich or something like that is, <laughs> is the title. Where, you know, I mean, it's a public company, but if you own only 4% of the company when it goes public, you're not gonna you know, make you know, generational wealth yeah. if yeah. that happens. I'm sure I'm gonna check out that blog actually to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting also. I know you you started off by talking about Sequoia, right? And and the Sequoias. And you know, the fascinating thing in Sequoias when I read the book, multiple things I learned actually, how they built their own technology in order to understand industries, market research, and then uh, you know, the partnership with Y Combinator in terms of incubating and actually your two pizza team is more like two founder team, like founder and a technical person just hacking it out. And, and also the other thing which you also mentioned, the mentoring of the VCs itself, like how they always have a junior partner go in to board meetings and look at decision making. 
make them present. That was so different from the other uh, firms which they were telling about. So what is your, you know, what is what is one or two of the things which you uh, you were fascinated by Sequoia itself and their journey so far? You know, I have no inside information. I've never worked at Sequoia. I have no information from the inside other than public sources like this book, etc., about how they built the firm and how they run the firm. Uh, but arguably, they have one of, you know, it is one of the world's best firms. Mm-hmm. I would go so far as to say that there are really only two firms in the venture capital business, Benchmark and Sequoia. And every other firm is basically copying some subset of the strategy that these two firms are executing with uh, at a world-class level. So that's really my broad approach in terms of how I like to look at the world. I think you can learn a lot even simply by watching from the outside and how Sequoia works. One point that I would make is that Sequoia has a very strong culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, that culture is not an accident. That culture is actually the first thing that you see when you walk into their office. They literally put it up on the wall. Who are they looking for? They are looking for the misfits. They are looking for the immigrants. They are looking for the rule breakers. They are looking for people who are willing, who are iconoclastic, who are willing to go outside the box, the risk takers. That's the people they are looking for. I believe it's a, it's a very strong and a very powerful culture, uh, which you know, they obviously advertise in their office when you walk in. Uh, and that's not an accident. Those are often people who succeed and make great changes and have you know, created massive venture style returns. I believe they practice it themselves. And that's the hard part. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a, a Catherine who was one of my mentors and who really changed my life, taught me venture capital, taught me how to make money at this business, used to say venture capital is a simple business that is not easy to practice. People often confuse simple with easy. Okay. And uh, the opposite of simple is complicated. The opposite of easy is hard. They are not the same word. They have very different meanings. And so it's a simple business that is not easy. And so it's simple uh, very similar to telling someone, you know, how to lose weight or how to get fit. It's mm-hmm. simple. Eat less, exercise more. I guarantee you, you will get fit. You will <laughs> lose weight if you do it. But it's very hard to do that in real life. Yeah. And I think that's what makes um, uh, that's what makes venture capital such a fascinating business because I do believe it is simple but not easy. Uh, it is a hard business, and firms like Sequoia, Benchmark, and of course Excel, Greylock, and recent. I mean, there's lots of great firms. I don't want to take away from them. Uh, but uh, uh, they they are able to do the hard things. Yeah, I think one of the things for me personally, you know, the one which you mentioned regarding the risk takers and the immigrants and people who are trying to actually push the boundaries, uh, I really was, uh, I enjoyed actually learning about how they started in China. They learned from other people's mistakes. How did they even teach the founders in India regarding how to how to even think about venture capital, right? I think that is a d- very different mindset to go into saying, like willing to put the time and effort in both the mentoring and also teaching. I think that made the firm a lot, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of credibility as well across the world. They are clearly risk takers themselves. Mm-hmm. They clearly are investing in the firm themselves. I mean, that's a quote directly from the book where Mike Moritz has asked, uh, you know, what's the best investment he ever made? Uh, and then his answer is, of course, Sequoia. Sequoia. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a great answer. And it tells you that they are 
uh, eating their own dog food. They are, you know, practicing what they preach. And that's part of the secret, only a part, but it is a part of the secret that makes them so good uh, and, and, and able to perform at such a high level for so long. That's the magic. You know, that is part of the magic of what they do. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching a, an interview with Doug Leone once and uh, somebody asked him about something and, you know, I won't give you the whole setup, but the answer to his question was, at, again, ignore the setup, was, you know, rather than watch a movie, I'd rather go meet another company and learn about it. So, and that answer has always stayed with me. Can I just see one more company today? You mm -hmm. know, can I just make that happen? And if that means that I have to get up every morning and work out and keep a good fit thing and be able to execute, you know, with a high performance for uh, many, many years, actually decades, if you're going to succeed in the venture business, of course, that means you must take time out to work out every day in the morning and, uh, uh, you know, maintain fitness at a level which will allow you to execute for 10, 15, 20 years uh, to be able to do that. And so I think that's something that that firm really ex is an exemplar of. Thank you. That that is really great, actually. I know a lot of analogies between weight watching and keeping fit and VC industries as well. So well, it's a simple example. I hope it relates and people can understand the analogy easily. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, years. definitely. So to close it out, right? Like what what are you what are your main takeaways from the book and anything else you want to share to the, to our listeners from the book itself? Again, it's a wonderful book because it has so many stories, so many anecdotes, all based on true information and so much to learn from. The single takeaway that I would have for people is there is no fixed formula in venture capital. You can be a rule breaker, not a law breaker, but a rule breaker. And there's a difference between breaking the rules and breaking the laws. Yep. Uh, you can be a rule breaker and you can change the world. That's the magic of venture capital. Software has zero friction. Uh, in 100% uh, uh, gross margin business. Uh, it is an amazing attribute. It is an amazing asset. Uh, AI is coming along, which has also got those similar types of attributes. And there really is a tremendous opportunity to build companies. And if you have the grit, if you have the stamina, if you have you know the self-confidence, you can build an amazing company. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Ashmeet. So that was a really engaging discussion on the VC industry and the book itself. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I learned a lot from you in terms of how you approached your own uh, investing and also the startups and the scale-ups, which, which have been mentioned in the book as well. Uh, listeners, do check out the book, The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby. Until next time, this is your host, Arthi Vijay Raghavan from 10X Growth Strategies. Thank you, Ashmeet. Thank you. Thank you.